Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. While they're going back, a couple announcements. First of all, you see we've added a row to the front here. And um, it's my first time up here on the big stage, so I feel like I'm 12 feet tall right now. It's a little odd, but it's fun. Um, so thank you for the building and property team for giving us, buying us a little bit more time uh, by adding more seats to our room. I'm grateful for that. Uh, serve team, if you've served on the serve team anytime in the last almost four years, if you currently serve on the serve team, that's toddler, nursery, nursery kids, music, tech, sound, uh, any, hospitality night leadership, any of those, if you serve in any of those ways, if you've helped with kids camp, VBS, whatever, uh, we invite you September 7th from 7 to 9 to Thunderhead Pines. We're going to have a really nice just banquet style meal together. There's gonna to be live music. Some of you know Pastor Eric Fairhurst, him and his quartet are gonna be there playing jazz music for us. And it's just gonna be a time to relate. It's not gonna be heavily programmed and to celebrate and for us to thank you for all of the, the work you've done uh, every Sunday morning so faithfully in making this happen so well. And so September 7, 7 to 9, there's information in the bulletin about that. If you're going to go to that, please, we need to have a head count for the catering. So text or email Bree Titchener uh, so she has that information. And then the other thing is Fall Fest on Sunday, October 23rd at 5 p.m. Um, we are going to have a Fall Fest celebration. There's going to be, you know, carving pumpkins. There's going to be, I actually, some of us have got to see this medal that you're going to get, this necklace, you're going to get some bling if you have the best chili. It's going to be a chili cook-off, and it's going to be a blast. We're going to have pies, and it's going to be really, really fun. And this is something that we're going to, we want you to invite other people to. Maybe not other people from other churches, they already have a church family and home, but if you have friends, neighbors, maybe that aren't plugged into a church that would be into something like that before they'd be interested in coming on a Sunday morning, that'll be a place to invite them to. So that's October 23rd, 5 p.m. Guys, we have a guys meeting October 20th, and you'll be hearing more about that uh, after the, the surf team celebration. I'm ADHD. I got to focus on one thing at a time, so we'll get to that. We're talking about the strategies that the that it sounds even weird saying it because we're just in such a, a world that if we can't see it, we have a hard time believing it. It, it sounds fairy tale-ish, but it's a real thing that there is an enemy who is opposing believers, who does not want you to be a part of God's family, who's trying to prevent you from being a part of God's family if you aren't. And if you are, he's trying to make you miserable and... Um, useless for the kingdom. He's trying to take you out. And it's this, this whole conspiracy of demons who are, I think, in a lot of very real ways, led by Satan, this accuser, this devil who is after us, warring against our souls. And so we're looking in Ephesians 6 at this passage that God tells us how to be equipped for that war. 
And last week, just by way of review, we looked at three ways, three strategies that the devil has for your life. And the first one is, if you, and these are if you are Christians, one is to disrupt our sanity and tranquility in Christ. He wants you to be miserable. He wants you to be depressed. He wants you to be anxious. He wants you to be mad. He wants you to be bitter. He wants you to be angry. He, does, he wants you to be insane. He wants you to get caught up in all the talk shows. And he wants you to just to go lose your mind. Like the rest of the world around us is kind of like vibrating off the axis. That's what he wants our inner life to feel like. He doesn't want us to have peace and joy, tranquility, gentleness. The second thing is he wants to disrupt the unity of the church, which is the key to her spiritual power and effectiveness. He doesn't want us united. He, want us, he wants us divided. We're going to talk more specifically about that next year. He wants us to be in fractions um, and factions against one another. And the third thing is he wants to disrupt the spread of the gospel. So let's look at some ways that he does that. If you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, that's okay. The Bible was originally written, most of it to be listened to, so I will read uh, I will read the passage. If you do have your Bible, that's great. Follow along. Uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. And there's also, I think there's some fill in the blanks. Tina, is there some fill in the blanks on the, on the bulletin today? Yes. All right. There's fill in the blanks. If you like fill in the blanks, if you're like me and you need something to follow along, we'll give you some of those today. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Anything that divides us from other human beings is not from God. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So we're looking at schemes. It says that we need to stand firm against the devil's schemes. We're looking at that word specifically and we spent last week talking about the, one of his schemes, which he accuses us. This week, we're going to talk about he seduces us. And then next week, he divides us. So let's just look at seduces today. And again, I said this last week, but it's probably helpful for you to know we're going to keep this PG because it's not just the type of seduction that you think. He does this in all sorts of different ways. The purpose of seduction, I think this is in your notes, the purpose of seduction is to lure you off the path of righteousness. It's to lure you off the path of righteousness. I used to take students to northern Minnesota for Leadership Quest, and there was this narrow path at night that you'd walk back to the area where we were all camping. The, the guys had tents set up over here, the girls had tents set up over there, and it was a kind of a dangerous place, and that's kind of why we brought students there, because we wanted them to be scared so that they would actually listen to us. And so we would tell them, when you're walking on this path, especially at night, there are timber wolves up here, and there are bears, 
There are scary things. They're probably not going to bother you. But you've got to stay on the path. You need to stay off the path. Don't get lured off the path by some noise you hear to go investigate it out into the dark woods. Stay on the path. You will be safe if you stay on the path. And Satan is trying to actually lure us off this path of wisdom and love, this path of righteousness, into the darkness of the woods. And that's what seduction means, biblically speaking. And it's one of his most powerful tools to wage war against our soul. And when I say like waging war, I don't, that's not um, hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. He is actually waging war against our souls. We need to be street smart about this, that John 10.10 says Satan came to steal and kill and destroy. That's his agenda for your life. But Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly. The Bible uses this, these terms of warfare when it describes this um, fight that we are in with Satan. In fact, if you look at you don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you, but you can mark it down if you want to look later. It's 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And we have to know ourselves and we have to be wise about not putting ourselves in position where we're going to be vulnerable to these temptations. That's part of waging war against the temptation. Like so, for example, Paul knew there was a practice back then, and probably there's a practice for some of us still today, some of you perhaps, that if you want to spend some extra time in prayer, you guys, maybe you don't go to bed at the same time as your spouse. So then you go to bed and your spouse is asleep. But you've committed that time to prayer, so it's a good thing. And Paul says, that is a good practice, but just don't do it too long. Have an agreed upon you know, time frame so that it doesn't go too long before you guys are experiencing marital intimacy because then you're gonna, that temptation is going to be inflamed. I mean, he gets as practical as that in talking about this spiritual warfare. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 5. I'll read it for you. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's certain things that we do that make us more vulnerable, and we just have to be smart about that and be careful about that. There's certain places that we can go that make us more vulnerable. We have to be smart about that. We have to be careful about that. The other thing is that Satan's not going to tempt you with something that's not attractive. So in the beginning, when Satan was tempting Eve in the garden, God had prohibited them and said, you can have from every tree in the garden, just not this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that tree. And obviously that's the one where Satan took Eve and he's looking at it with her and he's telling her, this will make you wise like God. This will make you know right and wrong. You can be your own judge. You don't have to tell, have other people tell you what's right and wrong. You can decide for yourself. That's how we're supposed to do it. You should decide for yourself what's right. That's what Satan's saying as he's talking to Eve. She's looking at this tree, and she's, she sees it, and she's like, yeah, you know what? I like that. I'm going to have some of the fruit of this tree. What if the tree was nasty looking? What if it was like rotten? 
The bark's peeling off. There's not a lot of leaves on the tree. They're like brown and falling off and it's gross and the, the fruit is like mushy and you know how it gets really smelly when you ever left bananas out too long, it just gets mushy and starts to melt into the... I actually, when I go to people's houses, I can see, if there's a problem with flies, it's usually because they put fruit on top of the refrigerator. Nobody can see it but me, and I have to tell them. There's, it's like melting into the top of the refrigerator. There's like, I don't know what it is, peaches or apples or something. You put it up there, no one put it back. That's what it is. I'm sorry. Um, that, well, imagine if the fruit was like that, if it was gross. There's no way Eve is going to take. She's going to be like, no way. Okay, all that sounds good, but that looks disgusting. That does not look attractive. I'm not going to do it. It looked attractive to Eve, and that was part of the temptation. Genesis 3, 6 says that the tree was a delight to her eyes as she was considering whether or not to take, to buy into the temptation. It was a delight to her eyes. Satan was trying to lure her off the path of righteousness, and he still does it today. He's not going to take you to like bomb an orchard and take you to an apple tree and say, here, eat, eat, eat one of these apples. He doesn't care if you eat apples today because God doesn't care. If he prohibited that, then he would try to get you to do that because God said not to. But it, that's not how he does it today. So how does he do it today? How does he try to lure us off this path of righteousness today? That's what we're going to talk about. There's a word you need to know. It's cosmos. It's not cosmos, it's cosmos. It's, it's the Greek word, K-O-S-M-O-S. And it really means like just an orderly system. But when we're talking about in Scripture, the way the New Testament writers talk about cosmos is this. It's a counterfeit system of destructive values that Satan has built into the universe. Values that are waging war against our souls. Everything God does, Satan builds a counterfeit. That's why we're going we're gonna to have an anti-Jesus, an anti-Christ one day who's going to fool a lot of people. And there are already anti-Christs who are pretending to have power that they don't actually have. Satan always builds a counterfeit. So God creates this beautiful universe, this beautiful kingdom, and Satan creates a counterfeit kingdom to wage war against loyalty to God's kingdom. And he infuses the world with these destructive values, this ecosystem that's luring you constantly. You have this sin nature inside of you that resonates with the temptations of the world that we're getting bombarded with. It's a counterfeit universe with false and destructive temptations that energize our sin nature, that bring it to life. Here's a passage. You might want to write some of these down and just go back to them later. I'm going to just read a few passages where the cosmos is used. 1 John 5.19. 1 John 5.19. John says, We know that we are from God, and the whole cosmos the whole world cosmos is the word lies in the power of the evil one 
Now remember, Jesus, when he was on earth, he was walking around casting the evil one out of people because he said, nope, I'm reclaiming that. I'm reclaiming him. I'm reclaiming her. I'm reclaiming him. That's what he would do. He was showing that every knee bows to me. I am the true king of the universe. He's a counterfeit. I'm the true king, and I'm going to show you by casting him away. Everywhere I walk, evil flees. And it's still true today. God has given us his name. That song told us. Jesus has given you his name and his authority. So we don't have to buy into the cosmos. Okay, Ephesians 6.12 talks about, this is a, I don't know how to say this, cosmos craters. And it's, what it means, it's a really weird combination of words that basically means this demonic system that is at work within creation animating it, bringing it to life. It knows your name. Your sin knows your name. Satan knows exactly how to get... Remember we said last week, he's brilliant. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He knows the subtle art of temptation. He knows how to get to us. This is why we, the Bible over and over and over and over says, be watchful, pay attention, stay awake. Remember this. The apostles were always saying, stay awake to this. It's all around you. He wants to lure you to sleep so you don't think it's a big deal. You think it's an overreaction that you should set up this boundary. You don't think it's grace. Be watchful over and over. There's a family of words in the New Testament that says, wake up. See what's happening around you. Pay attention to it. Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this cosmos. He told his disciples, my kingdom's not of this world. The passions of this world are warring against my kingdom in you, actually, is what he said. So we need to be very clear that the world's value system is intentionally designed to lure us away from Jesus and his path of discipleship. James K. A. Smith, in a great book called Desiring the Kingdom, quotes a marketing professor who says, be aware of your environment if you don't want to be manipulated by it. That's why so much of the New Testament is helping us be aware of the cosmos, the world value system around us, so that we're not manipulated by it. We recognize it. We see it. We understand it. He also says, and this is interesting, television was invented to create audiences for advertising, not the other way around. You guys know that? They, pe a group of people didn't just get together and say, you know, for the good of humanity, it would be fun to have something for, to entertain them in the evenings when they just want to be mindless for a little while, which is a really good thing. I like that. But they weren't wanting me to be just entertained. Let's just, for free, let's just build this communication tool that has pictures in it, moving pictures, and, and, and we can just, let's just do good to fellow humanity and give them something to watch. Television was not invented to entertain you. Television was invented to make you into an audience so that you could see the advertisements. It was invented to sell you products. That's why television was invented. The whole world is conspiring against all the values of God. Do you know that a group of 20-something-year-olds sitting in a room in Silicon Valley many years ago studying addiction technology with people who were experts in those things totally rescripted human connectivity, and we bought it. 
Because now we think that human connectivity happens over a screen. And these 20-some, I mean, those meetings actually happened. These 20-some-year-olds were figuring out how do we make a billion dollars by hooking people to this. The, there's one thing, and this actually isn't in my notes, but I remember the statistics. Um, the man who invented, there's a man who invented something several years ago that he now deeply regrets. It's like the guy that was involved in inventing the atomic bomb. He's never outright said he regretted it, but has spoken a way that I wish I wouldn't have been a part of that. The man who invented this thing that I'm going to tell you felt the same way and feels the same way and now goes around talking about it like, I wish I would have never done that. I wish I would have never invented that. Because now, every day, 200,000 lifetimes are wasted because of my invention. 200,000 lifetimes are spiraling down the drain because of this thing that I invented. You know what he invented? Infinite scroll. Now you don't have to press a button and wait for a new page to reload. You can just do this. He removed all friction and it reinvented the way that we think we connect to people. It reinvented the way that we entertain ourselves. Infinite scroll. I'm not saying that Satan is behind that, but I'm saying he doesn't mind that. Because power and force comes through human connection face-to-face -face with another human being who is just as on fire for the Spirit of God as you are. And Satan doesn't want that happening. Now, here's what I want to get into. There's a passage, and you can turn there now because we're talking about the schemes of Satan. We're talking about Satan's desire to lure you off the path of righteousness. We're talking about how he does that. I want, I want to turn to 1 John. That's not John, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's 1 John. There's three of them. They're at the end of the Bible, right before Jude and Revelation. And you, there is never any shame in looking up in the index. So if you have to look up in the front of the Bible where 1 John is, do it. it who cares? We're going to look up 1 John chapter 2, and this is where we're going to land the plane today, verses 15 through 17. Because it tells us three ways that Satan tries to seduce us. If the focus today is on his, his scheme of seducing us, luring us off the path, here's three ways that he does this. Remember, he doesn't show us a tree and say, don't eat from that fruit. Here's how he does it. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the, guess what that word is? Cosmos. Do not love the world. Do not love the cosmos or the things in the cosmos. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the cosmos, the counterfeit kingdom. And the world, the cosmos, is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I want to look at this, these three statements. The first is, the desires of the flesh. 
If you're following along your notes, that means doing whatever feels good. Doing whatever feels good. What I want to do is give you a few passages to help in times of temptation. Because you're not going to win this battle just by trying not to not do whatever feels good. You won't win. You're not strong enough. You don't have enough willpower. You don't have it in you other than Christ. And the way that the Spirit of God is brought to life and brought to bear on your situations is sharing Scripture with yourself. So I think these are written in your bulletin, but if you don't have a bulletin, write these down. The first one's Hebrews 2.18. You're going to be tempted just to do whatever feels good. Hebrews 2.18 says, For because he himself has suffered when he's tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That means that Jesus was tempted too, and yet he was without sin. And he knows what it's like to be a human being, to be tempted by a variety of things, and to stay clean and pure, and to maintain his integrity, and not get lured off the path of obedience, of wisdom, of love. So you can have a conversation with him about these things. Like, Jesus, this is, this is, a, this is a tough one. I need your help. And guess what? He lives inside of you through the Spirit and can redirect those passions to other things if you'll just stand firm, stand against those temptations for a little while. This is another one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is one that I turn to a lot as well. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're just facing stuff that other people throughout the world face. Everybody faces this stuff. You're not alone. It's not like, you know, one of the tricks of the devil seems to be you're the only one experiencing this. Everyone else has got this figured out. You're the only one still lagging behind. Look at you. And, and Paul's like, no, no. No temptation has come to you that's not common to all of humanity. Everybody's in the battle. And then he continues, but God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's amazing. No one can ever say, this temptation is too strong. I cannot deny myself this temptation. You can't say this because God says, because Paul says, God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to overcome it, to deny yourself. You can deny yourself. You can. You can have victory. And so many Christians that I talk with, it's so sad because, one, we don't know how to use the resources available to us, the Holy Spirit. Two, we think we're destined for a lifetime of the same sin over and over and over for the rest of our lives, and we're defeated, and that is satanic because God has already won, and he's in you, he's with you, he will help you. It's not an immediate victory permanently forever, but it will, become, it will lose its power over you. Because the day you call upon the name of the Lord, he's going to set you free. And he means it. We believe these things. The Bible isn't just some fun fairy tale thing that is interesting to read and I learn new things. I bank my life, my soul on these truths. And you should too. He continues in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, but with the temptation, 
he will also provide the way of escape that you may endure it. There's always a way out. Always. Always a way out. God guarantees it. In the middle of whatever it is you're facing, whatever temptation, there's an open window. Climb through it. (laughs) There will always be a way out. James 4, 6 and 7. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Here it is. You ready? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Temptation comes in waves. It's not like this overwhelming temptation that just stays at that intensity for hours and days on end. It doesn't work that way. When Satan sees, no, he's standing firm. He's not budging. She's not going to give in to this. He'll leave. He can't. He won't stick around. But, but, this is also true. Luke 4.13, when the devil has ended, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, from Jesus, until an opportune time. He'll be back. It's not like you won that temptation. I'm clear to go for the rest of my life and that, oh, he'll be back. He's looking for an opportune time. When you're weak again, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, oh, he's going to slip right in there. This is when my flesh is very weak. This is why I think fasting is important because you are forcing yourself into a position of weakness. Your appetites are strong, and that's when Satan will slip in there. That's what he did with Jesus when Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. That's when he slips in there, and Jesus says, you know what, I don't need food. I've got, I've got a different type of food that you don't know anything about. Three times Satan tempted it. Every time Jesus responded with memorized scripture, And Satan left. That's how we battle. That's how we do warfare in this way against Satan. And finally, this is a beautiful passage. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. This is one worth memorizing. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is Peter talking. The one that Jesus looked at once and said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. How would you like Jesus to say that to you? Satan's been asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat but I'm praying for you. This is Peter talking. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, again, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, after you've endured this, endured this, strong wave of intense temptation after you've suffered a little while the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you some of my most alive passionate fervent prayers and times of singing and worship privately and 
times in scripture have happened after these moments of intense temptation where by the grace of God I've been able to deny myself this and a day or two later because it's always it's usually not right afterwards but a day or two later God himself restores confirms strengthens and establishes me it's a type of strength that you can't get any other way but he guarantees, he promises to do that. If you just endure and stand firm and believe what I say is true, memorize scripture, fight against this with all your being, I will make it worth it. And you'll become the type of person you would never be able to come, become apart from me. He'll, I'll make you into something that can walk into any room, endure any temptation, and know that at the other side of that, there's a stronger sense of my presence with you. That's what we live for. That's what we believe. The desires of the flesh, doing whatever feels good. Those are some ways that you can battle against it. Here's another one. The desires of the eyes that John talks about in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. As you're following your notes, this is seeing something and feeling like we need to have it. We need to have it. Listen, there are there is variety in our economic status in this room, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And there is no moral attachment to how much money you make. There just isn't. You know why I know that? Because some of the most generous people that I know, some of the most generous Southsiders, are ones that God has blessed and given an increase in a way that they can serve others through giving generously. And then there are people that don't have those types of means and give just as generously in other ways. There's, there's not a more, the love of money, there's no moral evil with money. It's the love of money. When you need it, that's when it becomes an issue. This is really important because the church gets really weird about that too. We guilt people because God has blessed them to make money in order to give money. And then we shame people who don't have that because they can't give in that way. Do what God made you do. Provide and serve in the ways that God provides and serve for you. Don't attach a moral thing to it. It's not. But here's the other issue. Here's the issue with um, the desires of the eyes, seeing something and feeling like we need to have it. Here's where it does become a problem. If you start comparing what you have with what other people have and want what they have, then it's a problem. Lydia, who was extremely wealthy, who lived in Philippi and who sold um, purple linens, which was very expensive clothing, and lived in such a nice house that the whole church could gather in it. I bet people weren't going into her house like, man, I got I to... Gotta, I'm down here economically, but I need to figure out a way to get a house like this. That's when it becomes a problem. Instead of saying, no, Lydia is a friend. She loves me. I'm going to enjoy this because she's making it available. That's how it's supposed to be. It's when you start coveting and wanting what other people have that it becomes a problem. Live within your means. That's it. Just live within your means and you should be all right. One example of the desires of the eyes is consumerism. The lie behind consumerism is if you just had this, you would be happy. The dirty little secret behind consumerism, whatever you buy gets old and stale, and you need a new one. 
The other secret is that advertising seeps into every corner of our lives and tells us the things that we need in order to be happy. Right before I started preparing this sermon, Tuesday morning, I checked my emails, and there was an email about red dragon dwarf Japanese maple trees. Now, in our, at our last, and don't go buy me a, a Japanese maple tree. You guys are so sweet. Someone would do that. You don't have to do that. But in my last church, someone bought me a Japanese maple tree. We planted it in the front yard, and I, I just love that thing. And it's this red dragon Japanese maple tree, and it's like, how did you know? How did you know? I want one of those. That's, that's amazing. And it's like 25% off. If you order it in the next hour, there will be no shipping. And I'm just like, I'm looking at, I'm, like, I'm out of this week's allow or this month's allowance. I, I, I don't know. Should I go ask Kara if I can get this? How much is it? Oh, but man, that would be nice to have. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and there's a tea that they were talking about, Evening in Missoula. And the way they were talking about this tea, I was so hyped for it. I was like, whatever happens, I'm going to get Evening in Missoula tea by the end of this day. I don't even care what it takes. It's a botanical garden in your mouth. The aromas and the flavors, it just makes you feel peaceful and happy. Like you're in Costa Rica or something, an evening in Missoula. Wow. I don't even drink tea. But I was looking up how much this stuff costs. It's expensive. The good stuff, the right stuff, not the cheap stuff that you can get on Amazon. Like the right stuff, you can get a subscription for it and they'll send it and it's like $20 less. But it's really expensive. I almost bought it. And I don't even drink tea. That's crazy. Harley Davidson executives used to say, I love Harley Davidson's. I love Valkyries more. Okay, so this is care. I'm being careful here because this is my baby a little bit here. But Harley Davidson used to say, We don't sell motorcycles. Yes, we don't sell motorcycles. We sell the ability for an accountant to ride through town and scare the daylights out of people. <laughs> That's what we sell. And it works. The choice American place of worship used to be the mall, now it's Amazon. Last one, I get this uh, for a little while, I was getting the New Yorker magazine and it doesn't, actually, New Yorker magazine doesn't have a lot of advertisements. It just has a lot of stories and stuff. But this one had an advertisement. It's a ring. And it says, I am not a ring. I'm like, you look like a ring. It says, I am not a ring. I slept on the sun-kissed sands of Majorca. I partied with beatniks in the West Village. It's a little melodramatic. I spent the night in a Parisian jail. I sipped Bordeaux as I trekked across the Bhutan. My next adventure awaits Ross and Simon's Rare Luxuries, the estate collection. Is your life boring? Is your life dull? Do you need adventure? Do you need to spice things up? That's not just a ring. That's a way of life. Go buy it. <laughs> be aware of your environment if you don't want to be manipulated by it. 
one of Satan's most seductive lies. If you are suffering in any way, just go buy something new and it will relieve your suffering. Pride of life, needing people to praise or admire us. Pride of life is sitting here and listening to this message and saying, yep, they need to hear that. I'm glad I got my stuff together. Or thinking of ways, people, that you're going to go talk to about this and correct them. Or ways that you're going to correct me. I've got it figured out. And nobody else does. And you better respect that. Pride of life. Those were the people Jesus had an issue with, actually. It wasn't the brokenhearted. It's the people who stuck their chest out and said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there who's on his knees weeping at how screwed up he is. I'm glad I'm not like him. And Jesus said, he's the one that's going to go away justified. You don't need me. You're too good for me. Pride of life. There's two decisions you need to come to terms with. I'll do this really quickly. You're, not, you're just going to feel a little pinch. Two decisions you need to come to terms with. One, are you going to spend the rest of your life trying to impress people or love them? You cannot do both. Are you going to spend the rest of your life trying to impress people or love them? And the second one is, do you want to be honored by people or by God? Psalm 84, 11 makes it very clear that God is the one that bestows honor. And if you live for him, you will get honored by people. Sometimes. But in the end, when he returns, there will be a public reward, a public honoring of you as you honor Christ in this lifetime. That's actually going to be a real event that happens. So you can live for people's honor now or God's honor now and when he returns. And we ought to have those truths that we live for loving people instead of impressing them, that we live for honor from God instead of honor from people, so powerfully seared into our minds and hearts that we're able to rest from the ceaseless striving that everybody else seems to be doing. This doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the things that God is doing in you and through you and enjoy time with your family. And I like, you know, that's, that's all that stuff is really good. But at the core of who you are, do you live for people's approval or God's? That's what I'm talking about. We don't need to get legalistic about this. These are three powerful ways that Satan seduces us in his counterfeit world system called the cosmos, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And what I would invite you today is don't let this message be just a vapor that gets blown away by the wind and nothing ever happens. Don't let it be just something that you talk about interesting things that you heard or you wish 
the pastor would have said this, or it's just, it, don't let this just be a conversation topic. Let it to be a transformation topic so that you're actually thinking through, what of those three things am I most prone to? Where is Satan trying to lure me off the path? Why don't you stand with me and I'll, I'll close us in prayer. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.